Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. I've, I've DJed in great venues all over the world, you know, I mean the big venues that everyone talks about. You know, I, I always say like house music is the international language, you know, of, of the, the world. world. Really, it's not so much the act, it's the song. So it really comes down to the song. So it could be anyone and you hear that track and you go, wow, I really love that track. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. This episode, is recorded at the magnificent Peace Hall in Halifax. And with me, two brothers. I had the luck of having two older brothers who had rooms at the top of an attic attic room kind of thing. And I could go to the top of the stairs and listen and decide which way to go. They recorded their first hit single, Under Their Mum and Dad's Stairs. I could just use six proper inputs. And if I just bypass the recording process and go straight to my dad's tape deck, oh, right, quickly whip something up and they've spent 30 years on top of their game as one of the biggest names in dance music. Phil and Paul Hartnell, Orbital, welcome to How To DJ. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. I know, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for being with me. This means a lot. Before heading into the box of questions here, I'd I'd like to know about your early dalliances in music. Do you have an earliest memory of listening probably to the radio, I guess? We used to live in Dartford on the state, a council estate, a uh, very nice council estate. And our uh, auntie and my mum's cousins used to live just on the estate down the road. They played Tumblr Motown, they were DJs, and Trojan Reggae. And that's, they often had parties. So that was my introduction to what I would call dance music, to be, to be honest. The, yeah, that that was pretty much it. That was brilliant, yeah. wasn't it? Listening was, to, I used to love the Trojan reggae. Oh, like, they used to have records, didn't they? Like records. Yeah, yeah like, record like, boxes. And record things are boxes. Very exotic looking, you know, yeah. when you see things like that when you're little. I mean, the first thing I remember, I must have been under three and a half because it was in Dartford. We moved out um, to Dunton Green after that, but was Sugar Sugar by The Arches. It was the first piece of music that I remember that really sparked something in my head. It actually made colours and shapes in my head, proper kind of synesthetic kind of images. And I, I loved it. And it was the da, 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 da bit that I just used to love. And it was like bouncing orange balls on a purple background. <laughs> what, in your mind? Yeah. yeah. I, used to, I just used to love it. And um, I, I can remember listening to that. Uh, it was around the time when I'd be the only one in the house because they'd be at school. 
and with my mum obviously not not on my own um and she'd be doing the hoovering and i'd ride on the back of the hoover you know that's how small i was but i yeah i loved that and also you know what's the chirpy chirpy cheap cheap as well where's your mama gone that that, those two tracks are my earliest memory of loving music as you got older did you start to share your taste in music for sure because i had the luck of having two older brothers who had rooms at the top of an attic attic room kind of thing and I could go to the top of the stairs and listen and decide which way to go and if I went in his room it was punk Trojan reggae David Bowie Roxy music who I wasn't so keen on but I could you know that's where that's what would probably push me into my brother's room the other one Gary and listen to Queen and things like what was that crazy godly and yeah Gary used to play that crazy godly and cream album uh, consequences it's like a concept album about the weather attacking people but I used to love that. He was he, he denies his prog rock roots, but No, he was like Led Zeppelin was He was like, he was well, he, he yeah. introduced me to Led Zeppelin, which was unbelievable. Uh, Deep Purple. He yeah, he, me he liked to, all that kind and, of thing. And Craftwork, that was the Autobahn. Was that, that his Autobahn? Yeah, it was. It right, was, so yeah. he started on Autobahn. He started on it, yeah. So he, he did have like some saving graces. And I guess Craftwork have been impactful on your careers? Uh, they've been very influential. I yeah. say that because I mean, Craftwork take it a whole album. It's a, like a concept album about a motorway. You know, it's all electronic, sort of. You know, and that blew me away. That that whole idea of the concept. Well, I mean, I was listening to prog rock as well. You know, with Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple. So we had that, but then we, yeah, it was the electronic sound that grabbed me. The, the synthesizer. It was like, what the hell made that noise? You know. So we we progressed. That was a full amazing album, wasn't it? I mean, that's a classic prog rock album in itself. What? But uh, Autobahn. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's, yeah, yeah. that's, totally. what I, that's in what I my mean. mind, yeah. is classic prog rock. But um, yeah. just that fact of halfway through, there's all, you, you can hear all the cars going past, but you know they're artificial cars, but it is in, oh, incredible. Yeah, it, it's it, musical cars. It's yeah, just, it, 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 that it really mind, blew my yeah. mind as a kid. So when did the idea of, of making your own music come? Well then, well, then, then, when I was it, 16, it was, I mean, I, I always thought I wanted to do it anyway from around 12, I think, when I heard Tears of a Clown by the Beat in, in listening to the chart rundown. I just thought, oh, right, I don't want to play with Action Men anymore. I want to, I, this, I want to do whatever they're doing. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to work it out. Um, you completely, completely self-taught? Yeah, yeah, raised by musical wolves. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I didn't think. That I wanted to be in a band or anything. I just like like what I was just so intrigued by what the sound that, that that electronic sound. I just needed to. I've got ADD as well, so a drum machine was really appealing, <laughs> you know. But it was that sound, you know. Synthesizer got a really bad name by pretending synthesizer. It shouldn't really be called a synthesizer because they're not like synthesizing a horn, synthesizing strings. It's like stop that. You can get you can make all these wonderful noise like, you know, all these wonderful noises nothing else can and then yet yeah, you try to synthesize trumpet which is like forget it you know so it really did uh, didn't help themselves when did orbital become a thing then when chime took off as a, as a white label and then all of a sudden you 19, know uh, 89 yeah, 89 89 and um it just sold like hotcakes out of Jazzy M's vinyl's own shop, and yeah, to make that, yeah, that was it. He, you know, he said, "Right, we've got to do this," and he said, "You've got to think of a name," and just like made up a name, agreed to 
carry on and, and do this thing. So the name followed, as in you'd already started making music, but you hadn't got a name. I did, we didn't have a name. No, no. We actually that. did a gig playing Chime and Satan and loads of those tracks in Seven Oaks. We did a local gig before Chime came out. But we, again, I, 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 I've seen the flyer. And I don't know if we're down as the, the, the Artnell brothers or something like that. Or, or, or we are, I don't even know if we're on the flyer, but it was, we were supporting a local go-go band, which is oh, yeah, that's unusual it. in Seven Oaks. Think, you know. Yeah, they were like all like cool and trick. Yeah. yeah, they were from the same school as Gary. Paul, tell me about Making Chime. It was one of those really quick moments where I looked at my four-track, because for me, getting a four-track was the thing. That's when I realised what I was, and it was a composer, not a musician. I'm, a, I'm still a crap musician, really, but I can play well enough to get what I want out of my head into a computer and, and play with it. And I had this new four-track that had six inputs, and I thought, well, why am I recording onto four tracks when it's got six inputs? I could just use six proper inputs, and if I just bypass the recording process and go straight to my dad's tape deck, oh, right, quickly, whip something up. Wednesday night, just knock something up in an hour, did a bit of a jam, um, cocked it up, had to do it again, much to the mirth of my friends who were all sat on the sofa behind me waiting to go to the pub, going, oh, hurry up. And um, did this quick, I say quick jam, 10-minute jam, <laughs> um, went to the pub, and that is the recording that ended up coming out. Where did the ideas come from? I, I don't know, because it's one of those creative flow Impulsive. moments. I wasn't, the, the reason it worked is because I wasn't thinking about the end result. I was just thinking about the experiment of can I do something yeah. with six tracks? And I, and I, so I just started sampling an easy listening record of my dad's, which I always keep at hand and I still sample it to this day, which is weird because it's got an orbital logo embossed on it. And I didn't realize it's got like a, like a, time kind of thing that's the same kind of dimensions as our circular orbital logo i just noticed it the other day i went oh jesus that's like prophetic yeah so i just sampled a few samples of this easy listening record and thought, oh hang on that sounds a bit like strings of life excellent I'll, okay go down that route got my favorite bass sound okay do that probably a bit of 303 okay yeah i need another thing and when i had six things going in both drum machines going things like that. And it's right. Okay. It, yeah, that'll do. It needs another part though. Something to be like an intro. So I did the ding, 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 ding bit. Thought, right. Okay, go jam. I thought, and that I, was it. And then there's that little throwaway bit where it kind of goes into a backwardsy. And I had that and didn't know what to do with it. I thought, oh, let's just go into that then. And thought, okay, how do we get out of that? Different baseline. So actually though, I, I ended on that. And then when Jazzy M heard it, he said, right, go away and record this on a metal cassette. Well, see that bit? You've got to come back into the track after that. So that's why it ended up being about 10 right. minutes because I did it the same-ish and then... Uh, and made... I, I would say it was the most impulsive, unthought-of track. Yeah. Orbital, wouldn't you say? It's a complete... I don't know. It's Because I like to try and trick myself into that kind of headspace of just trying an experiment and then something comes out. But you um, try, and, try and do you something truly... else and then something else happens. Oh, yep. I quite like that. Yeah. I just love the fact that it was made in a hurry just so you could get to the pub with your mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. it's, it's funny because they all kind of were groaning apart from one of them, a guy called Farrakh, who was sat at the end of the sofa and he was the last one to leave and he narrowed his eyes and went, that was quite good. <laughs> it's like... uh, was the success of Chime life-changing for you? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it it was just 
bizarre because it was it we just went from that to a thousand white labels, two thousand, three thousand, six record companies trying to sign it, to trying to license the track, to then between that we would um Jazzy M picked Pete Tong and thought FFRR, I think they're the ones to back, which kind of turned out to be true. Um, yeah, but we were totally unaware of all this at the time. I'm oh, yeah, no, I just had to listen to Jazzy M. What did I know of London and, and its ways, you know? It, it was, were you not part of any kind of scene? Yeah, yeah, but it was a local. Uh, we're talking like Kent, West Kent, massive. You know? Kind of hyper-local. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Tunbridge, Tunbridge Wells, Kent, uh, Seven Oaks. <laughs> There was a big group of people. We'd all have illegal parties yeah. in like Oldbury Woods car park and that, you know, like a National Trust Woodland and that kind of thing. And some of the older kids who had PAs and local bands would play. And then it all started to become more DJ orientated. And when Acid House happened, they became more like Acid House parties. And then the police started cracking down on them famously for, for us. It was the Pembroke Road one where they sent police from four counties in and beat people. I got beaten up by the police yeah. at that time. There was an investigation and they said, oh, there's not enough evidence. Yeah, a few hundred like, people saw everybody yeah. get beaten up, not enough evidence. Okay. I ended up on, was it World in Action or something like that? Well, they, 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 in, something. they interviewed yeah. us on a documentary. And in fact, our track Smiley samples that documentary and me talking about being beaten up. I just sampled all the people talking about being beaten up and there's a brilliant video to i must say it's one of the best videos that we've had since the pops in my opinion like to 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 go along with that story tells you yeah yeah it's really no it's, 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 really, it's good. Really good you know that was what that was the scene we were involved in but that's what dance music came out of all these little pockets of stuff because once chime happened you know you had pete tong and his kind of world but yeah, then you, when, you, when we started doing gigs you're, you're doing gigs for people like eddie richards because what happened the shaman tucked us under their wing and kept and got us supporting them a few times so they would we'd end up playing in scotland and we met meet beat manifesto who we got on with like a house on fire who ended up then we did some remix swaps and then they took us supporting them on tour around america which was phenomenal for us which is where we got the torch glasses from in in new york Tell me more about that. How did you adopt the headgear? That was something that... Um, Space Age gifts. D- yeah, d- DJ Lex, who was a DJ, uh, again, with The Shaman, he recommended them. He said, oh, look what I got when I was on tour with The Shaman. He'd gone on a previous tour. and said, these are brilliant when you're DJing. You can see what you're doing. And when we were on tour with Meat Beat Manifesto and Ultramarine, there wasn't room for all of us on stage. So we said, well, we'll set up at the front of house on the dance floor, you know, we'd be right in it amongst people and feel it. We'd just have the PA at us. And then, of course, we realised you can't see a thing because there's no stage lights down there. We said, New York, we've got to get these glasses. And we we got them. I bought about seven pairs, didn't we? Because they kept breaking down. We've got much slicker, you know, Mission Impossible type ones now. Uh, well, I used to cut out the I used to cut out the innards and stuff like that and strap mag lights, which you could only get like that big ones what were they six <laughs> inches yeah no six inches then we had to put a strap around there because it was like really tight but yeah they were like, i ended up with a laser fashion. pointer at one point yeah. on there which is great <laughs> fun <laughs> were you djing as well as making music at this time yeah yeah i, I was I, I was djing before all of you know all of that because when we used to do djing things you know again around seven oaks and that kind of thing and i remember i used to play some of my tapes 
to see what would happen if I put my stuff into this mix with all this other acid house. And what amazed me is it didn't make any difference. You know, people didn't go, oh, what's this? People would still dance to it. And it was like, wow, this stuff's working. I'm doing stuff. And it's actually, it seems to be working. So that was a great way of testing your material. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. used to love doing that. I'll tell you what, what happened around that time of time, because that that would be called like an anthem now, but it, that wasn't even a word. At that time, clubs had the habit of, of getting a 20-minute PA, they called it, which became uh, sort of like the in, for an indie band, that was the pub circuit, and then they build up to venues. For us, this was the club circuit, and then we, we just set up a studio on, on stage, a whole, and just run it all live, da-da-da-da, we played tracks like Satan and what the cleared dance floors. We cleared floor. dance floors for four years with Satan yes, until it became popular. Yes. But we were deterred. We loved it and we were determined like, that, you know, we, we should we, play it. We dug our heels in. When, when Pete Tong uh, released Time, um, there wasn't any officialness to it. And he was going, well, what do you want? We were saying, well, we want to be a band. We don't want to get, you, you, you've got to just get, ask us to do another Chime, which is sort of not what we're about. We're about electronic band. So we that that's what we were trying to impress upon him uh, that we wanted to be an electronic band rather than oh uh, you know I just a know, series of twelve like, inches yeah like chasing state you know like the knockout sort of tracks for the dance floor it's not it wasn't really our we'd dip into that but we then we took Satan and then we we don't want to be you know restricted anyway da, 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 da. so the clubs at the time yeah did these PA so we bimbled around. And built up our fan base like an indie band would do in a pub circuit. It was a club circuit, so it's it all. Sort of, that. That's how you made your connections. I said we that's met people it, like David Holmes, um, Aphex Twin, and people like that by making all these little connections around the country. And you just kind of <laughs> hook up with people because it's like, oh wow, you're doing stuff like us, and this is interesting. And you know, you meet meet people along the way, like Eight Hundred Eight State and things like that, who were like heroes of mine at the time. DJ. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm not going to ask you about the making of every single hit single, but since you've talked so much about Satan and, and the story behind Chime is so fascinating, how, how did Satan come to life? Well, Satan was a reaction to the court case that um, Judas Priest were going through in America where someone said that they put subliminal messages, like satanic subliminal messages in their records. So we thought, well, hang on. So what if you want to say that? What 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 is the why has the church got a monopoly on you can only do church music you can't well, you can't do satanic music. So we said, well let's do just do a heavy metal hip hop track that that glorifies Satan. So let's put it out there and say, go on, take me to court. You know. But, but you ever play it back because it says Jesus loves you. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it, we sampled a bottle of service, I'm not even joking, like so later on in life. I don't know, but a year's... It wasn't that long. It was only no. about a year or so afterwards. Bling, bling. Right, so the phone goes. It's like, 
Or was it on an answer phone and I had to ring him back? Uh, you spoke to him. I didn't okay, speak Gibby to him. Gibby Hayes from the Bartle Service. I'm going, oh, for God's sake, oh, God, what's going on? Right, so, right, I don't know. He said, yeah, yeah, so here you're doing this track called Satan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're doing a, we do, we really like it. And he said he was doing a live version, a really slowed down live version of Satan. And then anyway, we got on like a house on fire. He had a brilliant idea that we were going to release his version of Satan and our version of Satan at the same time and then pretend in the press that we really hate each other. And that's a brilliant idea, but it never happened. It, it never it, came he to did, life. He didn't follow through too much of a hippie. And I met him later on in life, actually. He, you know, he's he was brilliant. a lovely man, wasn't he? Oh, he's so nice. Do you yeah. think that that was the beginning of always wanting to make political statements with your music? Well, I no. think for me, for no. me, it always it was it was always there anyway because I'd grown up with two tone and then moved on to anarcho punk, via, you know, via some less cool bands like you know, like the Anti Nowhere League and things like that. that weren't so on point, but when I discovered bands like Crass and Flux of Pink Indians, you know, I, I was growing up in a village in Kent that the moral grounding of those bands was stuff that I hadn't heard from any of the adults around me including my parents you know it wasn't you know like vegetarianism feminism things like that weren't you know anti-war all of that was so crass were bringing me that and flux of pink Indians and it was like wow okay these are different concepts and that kind of molded me and it's you know it's still with me now. They help so with your just, identity or something, don't they? Yeah, and it yeah. also it was that it was just that thing. It's like, well, for me, it's like I'm listening to dance music, and I'm thinking, you know, we've come from electro and hip hop and things like that, and it's like they're talking about politics and that. Why? Okay, dance music's great, but why? Why are you just singing about falling in love again? It's just boring. I didn't really like piano house and that kind of thing. I never did. For me, it was acid house and Detroit tech. When Detroit techno hit. It was like, oh yeah, they're even using the same equipment that we've got. It's, it's amazing, and I just liked that slightly darker edge to stuff. And it, it's like, well, why can't you throw in a bit of politics and dance around? I, I can. I personally can dance it, around it, to it, a bit of politics. Doesn't bother me. But I, you know, realised later on that not everybody wants to do that on the dance floor. It's not. It's it, it's, ne it's never been essential, is it? But it's just like no. part of us, you know. And I, I would say that you know anything that we've done with this social comment is done with a small p and it's more of a suggestive thing rather than uh this is the way you've got to think it's more like like what does god what does god say you know and you know it's yeah more we don't like, give you any answers because no, god doesn't like, say anything because god doesn't exist oh so there like, you go i've given you what the answer does god say <laughs> it's like I, how long you've been into imagining friends then yeah exactly yeah <laughs> i feel like uh making music's easy for you is it for me, it's kind of like my therapy. I can't, it's, it's, it's like I do art to be in the now. I'm otherwise, I'm uh, not so much now actually, because I've actually done some therapy and things like that. And I've, I feel and lots of meditation and bits of yoga and things like that. I've, I feel like I'm sorting my head out. But what I always found was I was always thinking about the past and the future. And that when I'm doing music, I'm now. And so it was, it was my, Therapy and meditation all thrown into one. It could be painting though as well. I could, I can, I like painting as well. But some, music was the big thing for me. Some artists think of going out on stage as a, a kind of therapy. How do you find? How's performance for you for you both, Phil? Oh, it's like uh, performance actually meeting meeting the audience. And I must say, we we've had the most fantastic fans throughout. 
yeah, really, really put up with us splitting up, coming back, re, you know, like like a break. Oh, they love like, a break now. And then. Oh, they, yeah, I know. Like the last tour ever. And then they're really into it. Anyway, but it, it, it's fantastic, actually, because there it's so raw and you can see people, the whites of their eyes. I love, like, that communication and... And like, if you're winning it and seeing them enjoy themselves, that 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 is the best. Now, now, what we're seeing is like those people are are bringing their kids, which are like 18, well, anything up to like anyway, 30 actually. Uh, grandkids, we're getting now. It's like indoctrinate them, indoctrinate, indoctrinate. You know, and it's and it's fat. It's yeah, it's it's like a we're well, like the very like grateful family. dead. Like a family, <laughs> like a family. That's a great. <laughs> You still love it, right? Yeah, yeah. Fucking for me, love for it, me, yeah. it's oh. it, it takes me back to that thing of like uh, making early dance music or electronic music. No, it's more dance music. You always, I always used to jam it. Like Halcyon, the single, it's a jam. It's not, it's not a prearranged thing on a computer. I was jamming it at live and then rec- made a recording and went. That's why they're so long because they're kind of jams. But it's like I don't want to cut it down. It's what it is. It f- flows, you know. I didn't and know. That's why everything yeah. was so long. Yeah, it's yeah. The same. Because often it's it's just a jam. I can't say that so about so we, everything, but we, yeah, we play the same way now. Like uh, that's like, exactly no, what, no, what we do. Yeah. We jam. There's no, there's no the backing track. There's no like a track can last. When he presses bass drum, bass drum comes in. If if you don't press snare high hat, you know. But doing that with actual people happens. in front of you is amazing because it's again it keeps you in the now. It's a it's a now moment. It's a it's a zen moment. Yeah. And sometimes I, I you know I remember towards the end of the tour I was looking at the my stuff and I I kind of went blank and I went I actually don't know what to do now. And my, my reaction to that was it made me laugh. I just laughed and thought that's that's amazing because I've got to do something now. And it's like wow. To get really and I was, bored and with so this I bit. just looked at the, I just let it go round a bit, and just looked at the audience, and just thought, oh. and then you just know what to do and <coughs> yeah. take stuff out or put stuff in. It's, it's so, the most direct, like raw connection that you can ever get. It is like your DJ, I guess. Well, I don't think so because well, when well, you're DJing, you can cut a track short, but you might cut out the the. If you cut it short, you're going to miss the grand finale. Yeah. Right. When you do this, if you want to make the track shorter, you can still do the grand finale. You just make, you just get to it quicker. You can change direction uh, at any point. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, all- this is totally freeform in in how you arrange it. For example, we did a gig in America, a festival gig, where we only had an hour, and I thought, ooh, our set's an hour and a half. So what do we lose? I didn't want to lose anything. I said, and I just said to the crew, I said, right, okay, be prepared. We're going to do everything in an hour, and just like. Whew, just made all these little tiny, just jammed it really quick and thought, right, no, you can't do that. You're going to go into this. You're going to do that. Don't do that second breakdown. Just go straight into that chunky bit. And it was really, it was so much fun because it kept me on my toes because I couldn't fall into safe but, patterns. And, and and doing things like that is just so much fun. But the, the difference, like with the DJ, you can, you've got the whole uh, gamut of people making up tracks and stuff like that, you know, so you can, so you can work your set. Uh, you know, really specifically, if you want, like moods and flavors. I mean, we can, to, you know, but we are just purely orbital. And also, if you're a DJ, a DJ tends to um, 
got a specific job, in my opinion, uh, as to make those people dance and to make those people enjoy themselves, which is Orbital does as well. But it's not not necessary to make them dance. It's just that we are a band. Not our job is to that. perform our art. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which, is, which is a different approach to when I'm DJing. That's for sure. You know, I'm I'm going. Well, you know, it's. I find so, DJing more nerve wracking because if you go wrong. It's your fault because you've got the entire history of recorded music at your fingertips. And if you get it wrong, it, it's your fault. That's it. You're fired. You know, it, it, you, if you don't entertain people when you're a DJ, you've, you've totally screwed it up. Whereas what we're doing on stage is, you know, the contract there is, well, we're, you know, we're doing a gig. We're going to play a bunch of our songs. We can't play any. We're not playing anyone else's. So if you want to come and see that, please do. And people come, they know what they're going to get. They know they're going to get a selection of your music. So it's it, it takes away a lot of that choice because you're narrowing it down to just music you've written rather than anything in recorded history. Yeah, but that's not, that's not, that doesn't follow through when you get to uh, festivals and stuff like that, people that are bumbling along. We play at places, you know, venues and that, that we're up against DJs that have got all that, all that, all that, all that at hand, you know, and then we come along, uh, square peg in a round hole. That's what I would say. Basically, really, we've always we always have been. And I think always, that's us. If you put us into a dance arena, yeah, that's um, what I'm saying. But that's I think if you put us into an eclectic arena, I think it's always it always works. For, I'm more comfortable at Glastonbury than say a big rave, for example. I think I, th- I think raves are the, the 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 place for DJs. I think that's 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 just where it's at. I don't really, yeah, I'm not a big fan of playing you know, dance only events so much. I, I, uh, yeah, I prefer I, I, to, I, I prefer to just play where other, you know, there might have been a rock band before you and things like that, but there might be a DJ after you because it's late and it's, you know, they're going to go on to pure, unadulterated dance music at the end. So, in a sense, but, so when you're at a dance place, you know, like, you know, you know, there's a, the, the DJs are keeping all the flow going, then we come on, it's like, oh, you know, it's all a bit like, you know, not, it's not that, it's not that flow, and so, you know, not that, you know, like. Well, it's not a DJ so, set. Well, No, I know. Yeah. So that's, yeah, so, but uh, having said that, we played, what was it, Deck Mental in uh, Amsterdam. Yeah, they loved yeah. it there, didn't they? Like, yeah, all day yeah. long. First, A bit of old school live, magic. First, yeah, <laughs> first live, uh, live band that they've had, and uh, um, they loved it. 30 odd years in the business. Do you think you're aware of what kind of influence that you have had, an impact you've had on dance music? No. Uh, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to see the whole battlefield from the trenches. Do you know what but, I mean? It's just kind of what I, I feel like I've, you know, I've walked one path like everybody else in, in my life. So I can't see the overview. But, um, no, 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 but you know, people tell me things like that, you know, say, oh, you know, you've had a big influence. And I, it's always very humbling. You know, my, my stock reaction is glad to have been of service, you know, because that's what I feel like I, I've done. The whole dance music thing when it first started was very different to, to the rock thing of having these icons on stage, you know, them and us. Uh, it was always... It always felt like being a, a craftsman plying your trade amongst everybody else. Do you know, so you're just, we're, it's, it's, it's all us. There's no them and us, is how, how it always felt when it started. It's kind of drifted away from that, I, I think, I, a bit. I, but I think the most uh, significant thing was the 1994 Glastonbury 
before you had the orb and the shaman maybe yeah, so yeah. Like, you know, like dabbling around on you know we we stuck in after Bjork the disco bit at the end we went on just people just wanted to hear that electronic sound we at the time we were touring Snivelization uh, the record company had messed up the dates so the, the, the Snivelization wasn't even released and we were touring all these tracks that people haven't even heard yeah, yeah so we jumped on the, the Glastonbury right at the end and it just kicked off, and then which Michael Easley Evis has said, when he saw that and the reaction, the penny dropped because they were very, very rock and roll and very, you know, and also at the time, Melody Maker NME were very, very anti uh, electronic music. You know, well, you know, the computer did it, you know, whatever. But uh, we came on, people absolutely went bonkers, and also. Uh, People have told me, like, you know, people in the audience that when they like I used to be an indie kid and I didn't get uh I didn't get electronic music, but then because we cross we bury it, because we do sample bottle surfs and go, you know, and all this, and just like do whatever, you know, do whatever we fancy, it crossed over, which is why the enemy were really, were really good to us as well. And we sort of and I think that bridged that, Michael Evis bridged that. And, uh, and saw that, and now they, you know, now look what we've got. We've got a whole field of trailblazing. Brilliant. But we did, you know, who, who'd have known? We're just doing our thing and going, oh, my God. Look at this. Watching my yeah. kid. Watching was my amazing. Kid, watching my kids at the side. We did the Shishi Bomb song. Oh, it was brilliant. Yeah, I always uh, felt more at home, you know, doing Glastonbury. I, I remember thinking, like, after, yeah, this is where, this is the right place. Having been around all these various clubs around the UK, where you just, you know, you, you we played Shelley's in Stoke on a Saturday night, not the whatever the call night they used to have was. And it was all people dancing around their handbags, blokes in white shirts. And they they, they kind of tolerated chime, but everything else they just didn't want to know. No. And so it was real hit or miss as to whether our sets would work <laughs> in other parts of the country. There was one place, Pure in Edinburgh, always went down a storm because oh, their, their DJs were much more eclectic and it was a, it was oh, a much proper connoisseurial kind of club as well, aren't they? Yeah, open-minded. David Holmes's bass. Yeah, well, God, um, that like, we played yeah. in in the Belfast Art College. So people were that, actually that was the only place that liked Satan at that time, and they yeah. they just literally put their hands in the air and didn't just didn't take them down till yeah. the end of the track. And we we couldn't. It was the first time we ever felt like kind of stars of some kind. There were people clambering at the edge of the stage, and we couldn't get off stage. And David Holmes is just leaning on his decks, laughing at us, going, you've got to play Chime again. You've got to play Chime again. Yeah. And we said, we just played it. He stayed at his house. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do it again. We stayed at his mum's house. It was brilliant. We came down the next morning, all like pickled and still like starry-eyed. His mum, uh, it was his sister or something. She was having a confirmation. I was like, oh, my word. It's like, they, like he's got a, like a wedding dress on. And she goes, oh, you're David's friends. Come and sit down. He's like, Tch. We like sorcerized it. We're like, oh my god! And she was loud. They were like, like so welcoming, lovely. It was brilliant, it? wasn't it? Brilliant, wasn't it? Amazing yeah. stories, guys. Phil and Paul. It's time for the first of your five picks from forty-five in this record box. All the questions are on forty-five. Steve's. I'll dip in. You say when. I'll pull one out. Okay. Oh, that's that's not. Right. Wait, uh, wait a minute. That's not fair. Can't we dip our fingers hand in there? <laughs> no. All right. Go on. Then. Go on. You'll see. All right. It's all right. Now, which do you prefer? I'm going to direct this at Paul. Which do you prefer, making music or playing out? Making. Why? 
because that's when I'm really, really, really in the zone and everything feels like it's going to be the best thing you've ever done. Never is. It never is, but it feels like it. And then when you when it's good enough, you tuck it aside and then you start on the best thing you've ever done. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's like chasing this thing that's never quite there and it's just fantastic. I, I, but it, it's the place where my mind is most at peace when it's, when it's working. I should say the new album, Optical Delusion, it's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah. I think it's as good as anything you've ever done. Yeah, so do, so do I. No. <laughs> it has been brilliantly reviewed. It, yeah, well, I know. It, it, it did. It, I, it I'm some, really no, chuffed did, 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 with the know, reaction. It's got really, you know, because you don't know. You just plod along. Yeah. And you just go, well, you know, or, you, know you don't know how it's going to be received at all. Back into the box for another question. You say, well, I'll pull one out. You get it. You're shuffling around probably. Uh, I'm not convinced. Yeah. Now. <laughs> Question two. I'll, Phil, you can have this one, although I'm guessing I, I may know the answer, bearing in mind you've talked about Glastonbury in 1994. What's the greatest stage you've ever played? No, no, I can't do that. It's like picking one of your own children, isn't it? <laughs> well, Is I it? will say that, we, that, that, yeah, 94, Glastonbury was a, was a good moment. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you another really brilliant moment was with the Paralympics with Stephen Hawking. I'm not even joking. That was that was fucking brilliant, wasn't it? Quite yeah. immense. Yeah. yeah, we we uh yeah, we got his the funny thing is he got his uh we we got his speech about the Hadron Collider, doing I'm talking about the the quark, trying to find the quark thing, didn't it? So we did that. Then we vocoded him, so we made Stephen Hawking sing, if you like. The girl that was like ushering him, we uh, for rehearsals, she they were doing it a different day, so we're going, oh look. Look, if you'd see Stephen, like, you know, just tell him about the torch glasses and, like, do that. She's going, yeah. So she said, yeah. Like, hey, he's going to wear them. He's going to wear them. He's like, yeah. Is it, but to, for him to wear them, he has to take off his, his normal glasses, which are like, a, like, he can't see anything without them, really. She said, yeah. And I told him, when, they, when you do this moment, you've got to get up and dart, you know, and jump around. You know, she's, she was brilliant. And he was so up for a laugh. He wore the torch glasses, weren't we? And there we yeah. were. Stephen Hawking, like, da, 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 you know, Paralympics. So that, 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 was, that, was, that was a moment. That was a moment. And I, I sent him an edit afterwards and he wrote back, going, oh, when do we, oh we should release this. When are we going to do it? When are we going to release it? Yeah, yeah, I know. He was so up for it. He was so up for just such fun, you know. And... Uh, uh, by hook or by crook, we couldn't release it at the time, and unfortunately, but it got onto the last thirty something, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Got onto, you know, we went to his estate and said, "Look, he really, really wanted this to come out. So, you know, please, I just wanted it to get out there, the whole inside entirety." And they went, "Yeah, eventually." They went, "Yeah, all right, brilliant." So, yeah, I felt like, oh, yeah, but that was a moment. Mm. He's a he was a very special man. I'd like to throw in one other stage, if I may. That Brixton Academy. Any time, that was always felt like my home stage because it's it just felt like it. Yeah, just felt like our home. Back into the box then. Question three coming up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for him to say it. <laughs> I said it last time. Now, um, <laughs> right. So this is what's the best crowd you've ever been in? Not played to, but been oh. in. I don't know. No, I don't. This is one of those answers that I will come up with at two thirty in the morning when I when I'm in bed. Have you always gone to a lot of shows? A lot of yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, Phil took me to my first ever gig when I was 12. He took me to see Split Ends, the, you know, the Australian. Yeah, Neil Finn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or New Zealand or Australian. I think they were a mixture. But he took me to see them at Hammersmith. And um, they had the body snatchers supporting, which is why he took me, because I was big into two-tone. They became crowded house. I think they did. Did they not? Uh, maybe some of them. I'd lost interest by then. I've still got that that True Colours album, which I, if I listen to it now, it gives me spine tingles because it's the first time I'd ever heard loud amplified music and it was just unbelievable. Best crowd I've ever been. It would have to, it would definitely be some kind of rave or something like that where actually where it's, it doesn't matter who was playing, where everybody's looking at each other and smiling and just having an, an amazing time. So in the woods somewhere in Kent, I'd say so, yeah, something like that. Yeah, if I can remember it, it wasn't right. it's, not, it's not the right one. <laughs> Let me dip back into the box for another question. Question four this time, say, what? Okay. How much planning goes into your sets? How much planning? But anything from four months to sit or six weeks, depending on... Depending on how my luck goes with <laughs> with breaking the tracks down, because I, I kind of tend to it's it's like this this new album, this you know the the recent tour the one the one we're doing now if you like the set we're doing now was we had our backline tech do a bit of breaking things down then I came in and hustled it all together probably in around six weeks but that's because I'd got someone to do you know, a fair bit of donkey work first, but I still had, I've still got to do it my way. Otherwise it doesn't work. It doesn't compute in my head. Um, but I'm just about to start on one for next year. And I've no idea how long it's going to take because I requires a bit more thought this one. How much of the planning goes out the window once you're on stage? Oh, it's funny. Cause sometimes you, I, cause what I do is I, I program a bit of software called Lima on iPads. So it's essentially, I don't have to look at the computer. So it's, it's like having an old fashioned sequencer with buttons on it. I just have all these buttons there in front of me saying what I, whatever I want to. I put little jokes on some of the buttons and that kind of thing to keep me going. But um, sometimes there's, I know, I know, no one, no one knows. Sometimes there's a button that never ever gets used, and I think, well, that was a waste of time doing that. It, oh. it, it's not necessary. It just isn't necessary. Uh, the stop button. The stop mm. button. No, they get used all the time. Actually, they do. Oh, they do. Know. You'd be surprised Absolutely. for breaks, and you know, I, that's a great button to press. Actually, you press stop, and you know everything's going to stop. So you've got to decide in that one, two, three, four, which sound is going to come in on its own. That kind of thing. I like doing that. You like, like having fun, that you understand? Bang. But, you know. but we have the, all the synths as well. So we've got MIDI message going to them, as well as triggering uh, audio from the Ableton. So you've got all the squigglability. You've got squigglability. <laughs> now you've got the 303. The 303, squigglability. I'll yeah. say that again. But, but yeah, so, and the, the synths change as well, depending on what, what tracks you're playing. But that's all, And that's always good fun, because when you switch synths, it's like, oh, what am I going to do with you then? And and it develops over over the the... The, the term of the, you know, the, the, the gigs. It's, it's good fun. Back into the box for your last question. From the box, say when? When? What's the best use of a sample ever? What, wait a minute, what, oh. what that we've used or anywhere, you, ever? It can be one of yours. Best use of a sample ever. Maybe something that inspired you, Paul? Uh, yeah, no, it's... 
Oh, oh, oh. oh. I was always impressed with the banality and madness of the of Charlie says. The, I just thought that, that was, was so the prodigy. It was the prodigy, yeah. Obviously, we said madness. Yeah, the, uh, with the madness of oh, the right, use okay, of right, that right, sample. Right, sorry. I'm, I'm sorry if I didn't make myself clear. No, I didn't. But um, <laughs> you got confused. Surely not. But um, no, it's not like me. it was. <laughs> it was. I uh, that was an impressive one. That was one of those ones that I, when I heard that, I thought bollocks. I wish I'd thought of that. I love that when, when you know, and that makes you smile. It's like yeah, good, you know, fair play. That, that's that's good. I know. I, I could stop there. I could keep thinking, but that was that was a good one. Here's oh. a thought: Is there, Have you got one in the bank that you've been always wanting to use, but you've never actually put into anything yet? Oh, I've what always sample? got a bank of samples like that. I've always got things like that. I'll um, tell you, you used to use. I've done. Sorry, don't get back to that question. Like Tackhead and Adrian Sherwood used to use some good choice samples. Keith LeBlanc as well. Like they were like. Good samplers, but yeah, it's not the best. Possibly not. the Amen break as well is also yeah. one of the best uses of a song. I know it's obvious, yeah. but Jesus, does it still work? That 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 drum beat uh, is yeah. killer. Yeah, the, the most sample drum beat of all time. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. But something in that no, I've, I've most of the things that I've had in the the on the back burner one of them was was actually Belinda Carlisle, Heaven Is a Place on Earth, and we ended up using that in about. 94 to interject within Halcyon. I love that we've got to bring that back and um we've got to bring that back no I love the fact that we did that and then we heard about the Bon Jovi sort of argument that they were suing each other so we put it over the top and they worked perfectly and then you did that brilliant thing with the uh Oh yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. Cool. the darkness in as the well. Darkness. That fitted as well, you know. That like, was brilliant. So we have Belinda Carlisle, Bon Jovi, and, and the, the darkness, darkness, and it all, all worked going with Halcyon perfectly in harmony with each other. It was Guys, uh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so so much. I have one last question for you. There's some kind of catastrophic world-ending event, and you guys have to play the last three records on Earth. What oh. would they be? Um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, he doesn't like it. No, Gary no. would approve, no. though. Um, <laughs> um, oh. Olympics. C- circle game, Joni Mitchell. Uh, Probably something by the Cardiacs. Mu- mu- music, music, <laughs> music by Madonna. How many, how many have you got here? You've oh, got three. I've Who's my three. That, it could be in different I, parts well, of the I world. I said two. I said two. Olympics and... What's Olympic? It, it, my favourite DJ. One of my favourite Oh, DJ. okay. I don't know who it's by. We're playing in different rooms. Olympic, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing the eclectic room. Music by Madonna. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Mr. DJ. Yeah, yeah, that's put a good the one. the kettle on. Well, you uh, choose one more, Phil, because that Paul's had uh, three. You have a third. Well, What about one yeah. of your own? I think Satan would be fairly appropriate, wouldn't it, for the end uh, of the world? Depends on your beliefs, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it'd be more of a comedy moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could say Satan, I suppose. It, 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 but no, that's more uh, now, what, what would suggestive. You yeah, now what would, you, what would you like to play? I last track. Know. Oh, it's the last track you're ever going to hear before you burn no, and die, no, Phil. What's it going to be? No, I don't know. Well, I would have picked... Well, I've, I've chosen... Two. Two. Well, you've got well, enough to room for three. Well, they're quite long tracks. 
<laughs> Let's leave it at that then. Uh, Phil and Paul Hartnell at Orbital, thank you so Cheers. much. Thank, thank you. you. That would be fun. Uh, and that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.